The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. And welcome to you all. This is a live Clubland Q&A on this lovely Friday, July 22nd. I am not Mark Stein. Instead, filling in for the guest host, the even less documented guest guest host, or as Mark Charmingly, at least I think Charmingly, called me a while back, the Deputy Senior Assistant Vice President of Canadian Affairs at Stein Online, Andrew Lawton. It is good to be with you. I will not speak for Mark, but I will do my best to cover all of the range of issues that Mark normally covers on these Clubland Q&As in his absence. Everything's okay. He is traveling, and he is going to be back on Serenade Radio on Sunday. If you want to tune in for the tunes, and if you want to tune in for lots more, he'll be back on GB News on Monday. But I will keep you company over the next hour in the meantime here. And in keeping with tradition, it is 5.01 p.m. North American Eastern Time, so that's 5.00. 5 p.m. in Toronto or 11 p.m. in Toronto, Albania, 10 p.m. in London, England, 9 a.m. Saturday morning in London, Kiribati. And sorry about that uh, interruption there. 6 p.m. in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and 7 a.m. in Sydney, Australia. So on and on it goes. Thank you so much. If you are a Mark Stein Club member, let us know in the comments. You can put your questions in, but of course, you don't need to be a member to listen to the show. And uh, whatever you think, I hope you do enjoy this here. Uh, it's always a little bit of a uh, boost of confidence when the first couple of questions are basically, why are you here? <laughs> Not exactly. Tony says has Mark disappeared from GB News and uh, there's a, a similar question from Nicholas who says according to uh, GB News the Mark Stein show airs every Monday to Thursday at 8 p.m. where has he been he, he Mark is traveling he will be back on the air on Monday so I, I will say very much to not fear on that but Interestingly enough, I mentioned in the uh, introductory time zone recitation there the fact that it is 11 p.m. in Toronto. Now, not Toronto. This is a thing. Americans say Toronto. Canadians say Toronto, as though there's no second T. But I'm talking about Toronto, as in the capital of Albania, which, uh, believe it or not, is where I am right now. So I'm coming to you from Tirana, Albania. And I wasn't going to mention that except for this little thing. The reason I'm here was because this weekend I was invited to attend this conference that's hosted by an Iranian dissident group, the uh, Mujahideen Kalk, the National Council. Council of Resistance of Iran. They have normally, I mean, everything for the last two years has been uh, ruined because of COVID, but normally they have this big annual event and they talk about the importance of regime change and they have speakers and they get you know, generally bipartisan support from the United States, cross-partisan support from the United Kingdom, from Canada, from Scandinavia, from elsewhere in Europe. And this was going to be their first big event in two years. And uh, as of, I think, uh, four or five hours ago, it's been cancelled because of a security threat. And I'll read the memo that was put out yesterday by the United States Albania in uh, the United States Embassy in Albania. It says the U.S. government is aware of a potential threat targeting the Free Iran World Summit to be held near Duras, Albania on July 23rd and 24th. U.S. citizens are urged to avoid this event. So I'm Canadian, so it's actually okay if I get bombed. But they say U.S. citizens are urged to avoid it. Uh, keep uh, low profile, be aware of your surroundings. 
And then earlier today, I guess the Albanian government itself told organizers, yeah, you have to pull the plug on this thing. So the thing is, though, everyone's already here. I was on the plane from Munich to Toronto this morning beside Joe Lieberman, and uh, Kenneth Blackwell was across the aisle. That's the former Ohio Secretary of State. Uh, Stephen Harper, the former Canadian Prime Minister, is here. There are parliamentary delegations from Canada, from the UK. And now all of these people are, are here and have a free weekend in Toronto, Albania. So I know the Clubland Q&A is about your questions, but I'll ask one of you if you have anything that I can do to pass the time over the next 48 hours in Toronto, Albania. I am very much eager to hear you out. That has been a little bit of a uh, disruption here. Uh, But so far, I mean, the good news is so far I haven't actually been bombed. Because in 2018, this event was the subject of a massive bomb plot by the Iranian regime. And there's an Iranian diplomat, uh, I believe his name is Asadullahi or something. I think think it's Asadullahi or or something like that. He uh, is now serving like 20 years behind bars because he was a diplomat at the embassy in Austria. And he was working with all of these uh, of Ayatollah's minions to blow up. Uh, these group of Iranian opposition leaders. So I guess it's not particularly surprising they're they're wanting to try again, but it has come at an inopportune time, which is, I, I guess, when thwarted terrorist plots always come. So nevertheless, uh, let's go to Fran Lavery here, who says that Andrew's book is banned from Canada's largest bookstore chain, speaks volumes about what's happening to Canada and Canadians under the Trudeau regime. Just a horrible and pathetic commentary after all the energy he put into his investigative reporting, writing, and taking his book to publication. These totalitarian regimes we're facing just don't plan on letting people's message gain any more momentum than it already has. Well, I mean, thank you, first off, Fran. That's a lovely, lovely comment. The context of this is that I I wrote a book that just came out less than a month ago about the Canadian truckers' convoy. It's called the Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. And it's not a manifesto. It's not a piece that's meant to whitewash anything. It is actually a piece of journalism that goes behind the scenes. I've interviewed key organizers, including many who have never spoken and some who are behind bars into, or were behind bars until very recently or are behind bars now. And the book has been, and I am very humbled by this, a, a tremendous smashing success. It's been number one on the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestseller lists. It's been uh, flirting around with number two on the Amazon bestseller list for Canada. I haven't quite cracked number one yet because there's that something about something about crawdads that is beating me. So I'm thinking of writing a crawdad into the updated version of the Freedom Convoy. But nevertheless, it's at number two for now. And uh, the interesting thing, though, has been that there's effectively been a mainstream media blackout on the story. All the interviews I've done have been with more conservative-leaning outlets, or they've been with foreign outlets. I appeared on Mark's show on GB News, for example. And it's much like the convoy itself, where the mainstream media is not interested in covering it, even though it's real, even though there is popular support behind it. But the real I think development this week was that Indigo, which is the largest bookselling chain in Canada, has decided that it's not going to put the book on its store shelves. And they haven't given the reason. I think everyone is basically able to read between the lines here. And if I'm not mistaken, Indigo did something very similar. They didn't didn't ban it from their shelves, but they did yank around one of Mark's books, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember which book it was, but I remember there was a thing when the book came out and Indigo wasn't carrying it immediately. And they, they sort of blamed, oh, there's just, you know, some delay of some kind and 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 that's that. But here's the thing. I mean, they carry books by Ann Coulter and Mark Stein and Ben Shapiro and Glenn Beck. They, they carry books by people who are in the conservative ecosystem. It's very curious that they don't want to carry a book that is incredibly popular with a large segment of the population. And the only explanation they've given is that they have, quote, a deep knowledge of the Indigo customer, unquote. So what they're basically saying is that people that like the convoy are too dumb to go and shop at Indigo. So uh, that's that's the story there. And again, I mean, it's it's uh, they can do what they want. No one's forcing them. No one's mandating them. And I don't suggest that at all. But it's been interesting just to see how people just don't want this story told. 
And I'm seeing it firsthand with the book, and I know other people have, of course, seen it in other ways. Nancy writes on a similar vein, thanks for filling in today for the Q&A. In Canada, are the reverberations of the truckers' convoy still ringing? Have the truckers and their cause gained any support from Parliament? What do you think is next for Canada? Well, I'll answer that in two ways, Nancy, because I, I think that culturally the truckers' convoy is still reverberating. Yes, I mean, people are still talking about this. It's created this entire movement of people that are interested in freedom protests and people that are waving Canadian flags, getting together over the summer months, people that are following around Justin Trudeau when he goes on these little photo op stops and heckling him. And I mean, whether you think that's civil or not is uh, something you can decide for yourself, but people are, are very much mobilizing in a way that they hadn't been earlier in the pandemic and, and certainly before COVID. But I think, again, Justin Trudeau is also still in charge. I will point out, though, that there was a poll that came out, and I'm just going to pull up the exact numbers here so I, I don't get them wrong. Support It was on support for mask mandates and vaccine passports in Canada, which earlier on were very, very popular. And if you were to put this to a referendum, we would have had mask mandates and vaccine passports. So the reality was people just wanted them. More people in Canada were consumed by fear on these things. So 75%, 70% rather, in September said they would support vaccine passports and mask mandates. And now 25% do. So that's significant. And again, you know, polls are not airtight. They're not perfect. But from September to now, so about nine months time, this has dropped by a third. It went from being three quarters of the population to being one quarter of the population. And I think in large part, that is an effect of the convoy. You may say it, it may have just been a trend that was happening anyway. The convoy certainly exacerbated it. And the big thing was, and I'm sure we'll talk later on about the UK Tory leadership race. Canada is in the midst of its own Tory leadership race right now. And one of the big reasons for this is because of the convoy. Because the former Conservative leader, a man by the name of Aaron O'Toole, was completely ineffectual on the idea of vaccine mandates and COVID restrictions, even when the convoy was coming up. And absolutely every Conservative in the country, and even people that weren't Conservatives, were supporting the truckers. He was asked, you know, are you going to meet with them in Ottawa? And his answer was, well, you know, I don't, well, uh, uh, well, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I'm a, I'll, I'll truckers, I support, like, and he just couldn't answer absolutely couldn't answer so the MPs in his caucus turned on him and in the leadership race now most of the candidates are all very vocal convoy supporters so it has changed the Canadian political culture whereas a year ago there was no one speaking out on these issues and now you have political candidates in opposition yes but political candidates that are prepared to take up that fight so I, I think that in and of itself is a change even if it's not a, a dramatic change at the government level and michael writes what is your take on trudeau by the way i will say you don't have to do all canadian content i appreciate the canadian questions to let me ease into it but i want to make sure i'm getting everyone else looked after as well but michael says what is your take on trudeau traveling all over canada right now doing silly media photos it's not a campaign season or is it did i miss something no michael it's always a campaign season certainly for Justin Trudeau. There's some speculation happening now that Justin Trudeau may call an election this fall, which would be effectively one year after the last election that we had in which he, he won another mandate. I don't think there is going to be another election because right now he's effectively got carte blanche to govern for four years. So if he were to have an election now, the most he would get out of it is an extra year. So why would you gamble the next three years of your premiership when the upside is only an additional one year overall? It, it just, I mean, yes, he's audacious, and yes, he's uh, someone who I, I think is perhaps a bit delusional about his own popularity, but it just seems like too big a risk for, for what the reward is. But the flip side to that is if you look at his actual conduct right now, he's doing the whole campaign thing. He, he's doing the, 
uh, talking about you know, everything else. He's talking about all the issues. He's going and kissing the babies, and he's doing the ice cream parlor tour, and he is uh, appearing all over the country. And what he's doing, in, in a sense, is campaigning. This is how you campaign. This is not what he does at any other point. The only thing that I think really is the silver bullet against it I don't know if you saw Laura's links this week, but the uh, picture in Laura's links article was a picture of Justin Trudeau's new haircut. And anyone who has their haircut like that cannot win and is not suited for higher office. So I think if nothing else, this is an example. I mean, the best uh, meme that I saw explaining this is that uh, he must have accidentally frozen his barber's bank accounts back when the convoy was taking place. So his barber was uh, <laughs> was having a bit of uh, a bit of vengeance against him here. Now we we have a, a couple of other Canadian questions, but we'll, we'll get back to those later because I, I don't want to make this entirely a, a Can- Canadian edition here. Gregory Lawton, now that's Lawton with the G H, not with the W, says for your American listeners, could you comment on the pros and cons of the leading candidates for UKPM Sunak, Truss, and Mordaunt? Well, Mordaunt's out. It's actually just Sunak, uh, R- R- uh, Rishi Sunak, and Liz Truss. Now I don't know what to make of any of them. Well, I, no one does. Because they're all the same. And this is, I think, the big frustration that I have looking at this is that, for starters, the system, the system itself. So if you aren't familiar with this, the caucus narrows down the pool of candidates to two candidates. The the caucus finds the two best in its view candidates, and then the Conservative Party members vote on those two alone. So the idea of having an outsider is virtually impossible in the British leadership system. So you're stuck with two establishment candidates who are effectively the same. The contrast between them are, I would say, completely insignificant. And now, I mean, Rishi is trying to say that he was the guy single-handedly standing up against a December lockdown. There was a, a story today where he said he challenged the system. The country was hours away from another national lockdown in December, and he was on vacation in the U.S., and he flew back, and it was going to happen any minute now, but he got in there, and he stood up, and he spoke truth to power, and he told Boris Johnson what was up, and, and he single-handedly prevented the country from from going into another lockdown. Now, I don't believe that at all because he was exactly part of the regime that was locking people down, that was putting in the COVID passes, that was doing all this. As was Liz Truss. So these people were not actually bulwarks against any of this whatsoever. And interestingly enough, I think the real winner of this all is is Boris Johnson. There was a piece I read earlier in Political Light, which I I actually quite enjoy, and it was Tim Montgomery, who oftentimes writes at Conservative Home. He was reporting that Boris Johnson is telling aides that he will be prime minister again within a year. And I got to say, I don't necessarily think he's wrong at this point. Now, whether that's good for the country, whether that's good for anyone but Boris Johnson, you can decide for yourselves. But when these are the choices, I, I think a lot of people will end up longing for Boris Johnson. A lot of people will say, okay, yeah, 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 you know, I know Boris wasn't great, and I know the party gate and the hypocrisy and blaming Putin's toxic masculinity for the war on Ukraine, but, you know, he, he's better than these just damp rags that we get now. And, and the problem I have is that too, too many people are, are far too comfortable with settling. Too many people are far too comfortable having someone who's, who's basically not going to do anything different. And, and if they do do something different, it's not going to be better than Boris Johnson. This is not coming from someone who's a a gigantic fan of Boris Johnson premiership. Uh, Quite the contrary. It's coming from someone who has, I've made a lot of criticisms about the whole COP26 racket and the COVID situation and all of that. And the saving grace of Boris Johnson's time in office was, of course, Brexit. And you can say that's a big achievement. Absolutely. It's It's a big caveat if you're saying he's bad for these reasons, but he did this. But when I I see Rishi Sunak claiming that he's the guy that prevented us from going into another lockdown, what about the ones before that? What about the COVID passes? And Liz Truss, very similar. I mean, she's the one who seems to be getting the I'm a real conservative demographic. She's, She's trying to channel Margaret Thatcher and not even in a subtle way. She's literally just you know, copying and mimicking Margaret Thatcher, not in policy, but in attire and in language. 
And she's the one, I mean, just anecdotally, that I see snatching up a lot of the support from people that would call themselves the the real conservatives, that would be on the, the right side of the conservative party. And uh, she says, I'm a low-tax conservative and, and all of that. But again, I don't think you're getting anything here apart from someone who wants to be prime minister. You're not getting a big, bold leader in any, of them, in any of these cases. No one's coming out with a big, bold policy. She says, I'm a low-tax conservative. Okay, great. What else is new? Well, I should say, actually, that is unique in this race, because Rishi Sunak, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, he was talking about how, well, you know, yeah, he supports low taxes, but only when we get inflation out of control. So he will lower the taxes after the crisis when people could really benefit from having their costs lowered. So uh, that is uh, the, the approach that he's taking on all of this here. Uh, Peter writes, what do you think of the, or sorry, what, what do you hear about the Amsterdam farmer protests and do you think they will be successful? This is, I, I've been enjoying watching this. Now, I, I didn't realize that there is a, a Dutch tradition of hurling feces at government buildings, of hurling manure at government buildings in protest. So when I first saw that coming up in this protest, I thought was a, that was a unique thing that was just happening right now. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's novel enough. But it is interesting how these protests in the Netherlands, which are not new. I mean, I, I was reading at some point recently that this has been going on for years, but the government is still continuing to exacerbate these challenges. Now it's going after the nitrogen. And if it's not that, it's something else. And a lot of them have had enough. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that a lot of the organizers of the Canadian truckers convoy have very much jumped up to support what's happening in the Netherlands. There's actually on, I think it's Saturday of, uh, maybe it's tomorrow or Sunday, there is going to be a, a big display in Canada that a lot of the trucker convoy people are behind. And it's just a, a show of solidarity with Dutch farmers in the Netherlands. And you look at all of these uprisings. I mean, what's happening in Sri Lanka is a bit of a different case. But even so, you have people that are taking over, that are partying in the palace pool, that are storming the Bastille in their own, in their own way, in, in their own country. And I think all of these things are connected. People have had enough. And this war on farming is a particularly interesting one that no one seems to be talking about. I mean, Mark's been mentioning on his GB News show how Bill Gates, the tech CEO, Microsoft guy, is somehow the uh, world's preeminent farmer, the largest owner of farmland in the United States. And then you have the United Kingdom, and this one has been circulating on Twitter the last few days. They're offering a lump sum payment to get people to leave farming. So they do this thing. It's called the Lump Sum Exit Scheme, and it's through the Rural Payments Agency. I'm just reading on the UK government website right now. It looks like they published this in February. They are allowing people to leave farming, and they'll pay them to do it. Now, they're not cloaking this in environmental language, but you know it's part of this new trend that's really trying to increase dependency on food that's not coming from farming. Now it's all about, oh, the, the carbon emissions of farming and the greenhouse gas emissions and the methane and the nitrogen. And, 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 and people that want to, I mean, in my city of London, Ontario, they're building a, a giant cricket factory right now. And the government's given them, I don't know, however many millions of dollars to build the cricket factory. And, you know, people were joking about it. It's like, oh, yes, you know, Klaus Schwab wants us all to eat crickets. But there is something to it that is very serious behind the humor. And I don't believe that we're going to have mandatory cricket diets within a year or two. But you have people that would love to move us away from the way of life that we have now and the food that we eat now and the way we get around. And I don't have the, the audio clip handy, but there was this clip from the World Economic Forum in, in Davos in May where I, I was there. And it was this guy from Alibaba, who's a Canadian, believe it or not, but he's the president of the Alibaba group. And he was on this panel and he was gloating, gloating. He was so giddy about this little thing that they're developing at Alibaba, which he called a personal carbon footprint tracker. 
And he said this thing will track what you eat, where you travel, how you travel, and all of these other things, what you buy online, and it will measure your carbon footprint. And, and the implication is that this is for conscious consumers that want to track these things. They're not going to just, you know, put it in all your phones like a social credit system, because absolutely the uh, Chinese state-connected Alibaba would never, ever do something like that, ever in a million years, right? But this is what people want. And, and they want a world in which they control the food supply. They don't want... I mean, I, I, I was uh, walking around and I had a steak tonight, which I thought was delightful. And, you know, every time I do that, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, at a certain point, it will be harder to do this. It will be harder to find this because there are incentives to try to get people out of farming. There are government measures that simply just make it harder to be in this industry and harder to survive in this industry. And this is a very big problem, not just for the individual farmers who are affected by it, but this is a fundamental reshaping of society. And if you talk about it, you are seen as a conspiracy theorist. Chris Hall, who I've actually met on the Mark Stein Cruises, says, Hi, Andrew, we've been treated to a whole host of examples of how incredibly bimodal the current so-called justice system in the U.S. has become. If you're the wrong sort of person, such as a bodega worker or a January 6th protester, you are thrown into jail immediately. Well, if you're the right sort of person, such as an insurrectionist working for a horrid late-night show, or someone attempting an assassination of a political candidate during a campaign speech. It's nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Similar shenanigans took place in the wake of the Ottawa Freedom Convoy. Similarly, there seem to be two speeds of justice. Bannons and Navarros and Musks are rushed through the meat grinder at warp speed, but certain lawsuits in D.C. can languish for a decade with no repercussions. Could Mark argue that his case was, in fact, an attempted merger and get it moved through the Delaware Court of Chancery. You can use the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defense and argue that Michael Mann just wanted to date him. Well, you got a lot there, Chris, and I, I love all of it. By the way, I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think we need to be more uh, sympathetic to her. I don't know if you saw that she was arrested this past week. And by arrested, I mean... She staged walking with a police officer with her hands behind her back where if you zoom in at the right angle and you're actually behind her, you realize that it is only her muscles that are keeping her wrist together and nothing else unless they're using those weird uh, new CIA invisible handcuffs I hear about. I think they're actually manufactured by, by Acme. Uh, so yeah, Ilan Omar and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez did this like fake arrest thing the other day, which was was very amusing. But yeah, you are right about this. And, you know, Mark has talked at length about the incredibly high conviction rate where the process is the punishment. And I think the Michael Mann lawsuit, I mean, I've given up asking about what the status of it is because I just, you know, at this point, it's no longer even a case. It's been going on 10 years now. And when you look at the January 6th thing, I, I think this is as well going to last years and years and years. And I... I can see in Canada, there are a number of challenges that have been put before the government on a lot of COVID responses, whether it's legal challenges against the vaccine mandate for air travel, or legal challenges against this COVID restriction or that lockdown. And when these have gone before judges, the judges have been incredibly deferential to the government. And what's going to happen now is the judges are going to say, well, you know, by the time they hear it, the mandates are long gone, so it's moot. We don't need to hear it. There's no point. It's, it doesn't fit the principle of judicial economy to waste judicial resources to hear a case now when, you know, we couldn't get to it the first time around. So as a result, there is no justice at all. Right now, Tamara Leach, who is one of the uh, lead organizers of the Freedom Convoy, is still languishing behind bars. She was denied bail on her charge of violating her bail the first time around. And the charge of violating her bail came in the fact that she was at an event that was put on by her lawyers. And she appeared in a photograph with a guy that her bail condition said she wasn't supposed to talk to unless it was in the presence of her lawyers. And the whole place was crawling with her lawyers. So she was in the presence of her lawyers. But this justice of the peace said, no, you know, it would undermine public confidence in the justice system if you were to walk free. And, and you being Tamara Leach, who is this uh, grandmother of uh, native heritage, who is, I think, like five foot two or something like that. And, and she is, I mean, I don't like the comparisons that we heard from the media about how, oh, the convoy was Canada's January 6th. But I think in terms of the state response, 
we are very much seeing the January 6th on the side of the government, where they are deciding the outcome and doing what they need to do to get to that outcome, irrespective of the facts. And Steve Bannon as well. I mean, I only read a little bit of this, but I don't even think he needed to read the whole story to get the whole story, because I think everyone knew it was headed to this point. Steve Bannon, who has been found in contempt, two counts of contempt of Congress for his failure to comply with the January 6th uh, subpoena from the House Select Committee. Now, I believe that contempt of Congress is a badge of honor to a lot of people. I I believe Congress is is deserving of contempt to to a great many people. He's going to plead not guilty to the charges. He'll be sentenced on October 21, and he faces a minimum sentence of 30 days in jail. So he is going to get 30 days in jail, presumably. Again, we know exactly what they want. And it is fascinating to me, and not all that surprising, that the apparatus, the state, I mean, as the Democrats in this case, are never going to stop prosecuting Donald Trump. I mean, even if you accept at face value, they won, he lost, he's out, they're in. They don't trust that. So they do want, it's the, <laughs> I'm not the first person to make the comparison, but it is the Oliver Cromwell thing. It's like the, the kill him and keep killing him again just to make sure he's, he's really dead. And the Steve Bannon thing is, I mean, I don't know Steve Bannon. I miss no skin off my back what happens to him on a personal level, but just on an institutional level, if you're talking about public confidence in the justice system, it's far beyond that. They don't even care. They don't even care now. Their focus is purely on preserving the regime and upholding the regime. And this is not something, again, we can point to the U.S. justice system as being particularly bad on that. But it's not at all limited to the American justice system by any stretch. David Lester writes, Andrew, do you think Joe Biden will be forced out of office ostensibly for COVID, but actually for dementia or because he's radioactive to the Democrats now? So I don't know if you guys saw this, but earlier this week, Joe Biden like inadvertently announced that he had cancer. He was talking about, it was like the most nonchalant announcement of cancer. He's like, oh yeah, that's why I and everyone I know has cancer from, I think it was Delaware or something like that. And it was so nonchalant. Everyone's like, wait, is this a gaffe? Or like, does he not know what he's saying? Or has he just, you know, accidentally told us something that was meant to be a secret? And I think the the end of it is that, oh no, he was talking about his previous diagnosis of skin cancer. But the reason I share that is to tell you that there's a very strong likelihood that one day he'll just accidentally say he resigns because he meant to be like, he, he was meaning to say, I hereby sign this thing, and he'll say, I hereby resign, and maybe that'll be enough. So <laughs> I think he will be forced out. I, I don't think this guy can run a national election campaign. I don't think he could go up on a debate stage against Donald Trump or against Ron DeSantis or against anyone else because the guy can barely go in, on a podium in front of a friendly press and string together a few scripted lines without getting it wrong. And I, it was sad. I mean, it was, it was legitimately, it looked like elder abuse, seeing him campaigning from the basement last time around. I, I don't even think we'll get the courtesy of the basement interviews next time around at this point. So, I mean, if they, if they prop him up and do like an animatronic CGI Joe Biden for the next four years, maybe it'll actually be a better president. I saw when I was in London in the United Kingdom, a while ago, and I would implore that you don't judge me for this. I saw this ABBA show where they have reanimated ABBA using special effects and lighting and video, and they've set up this new residency of ABBA. And they call them avatars, which, if nothing else, you can appreciate the cleverness of the name. But I think this is great because I actually think Bjorn Alveus and Benny Anderson should just license the technology to the White House. And then we can just use the avatar thing for Joe Biden. And maybe we can even program a couple of ABBA songs. So when he doesn't know his lines, we can, you know, just break into a rousing rendition of Dancing Queen or something like that. And at the very least, we'll have some entertainment instead of just complete and utter shame. Mary writes, oh, we talked about this already. Did you see Steve Bannon was just convicted for contempt of Congress? Aren't we as patriots obliged to hold that bunch in contempt? Yeah, I mean, contempt of Congress, I think, should just be a resting position for society at this point, not a criminal charge. Uh, Suzanne writes, hi, Andrew, what do you make of the global in the northern hemisphere red-hued, sorry, I'm misreading something here. 
Oh, Red Hue would be very alarmed weather maps we've been getting in the past few weeks. Maybe you can get a few days by the sea on your free weekend. Yeah, it's everyone's talking about it, though, about it as though it's actually chaotic right now. Uh, because you had 41 degrees at Heathrow the other day, and you had, uh, I think, 35 degrees in Toronto, and I think it was 30-something degrees for me in Toronto earlier. And as a Canadian, I kind of welcome this. And and I'm reminded of Patrick Moore, one of the founders of Green uh, Greenpeace, who has now, I think, been very strong on the climate issue. And he's always said, you, you never will see a, a, ref, a weather refugee fleeing hot weather for cold. You'll only ever see the other way around. So right now, we're seeing, I think, the, the inevitability of, of COVID being over. And all of these other grievances that had to be shoved to the back burner during COVID are now coming back. So it was fascinating. All of the climate alarmists went very silent in COVID because no one cared. Because everyone cared about oh, COVID and case rates and vaccination and all of that. And now you can tell COVID is truly over because every other form of alarmism is coming back. And you have people jockeying for the same panic. And the people that were behind the COVID lockdown are now going to be coming back and wanting the climate lockdown. And Greta Thunberg, who had a couple of days to sit it out while everyone listened to the uh, crazy COVID doctors, is now going to come back and, and tell us all that we have to live with less. And all of this stuff will effectively just come. And we'll be along for the ride. Dale writes, Andrew, who... Oh, here we go. We're back to Canadian content here. But this is, uh, I think, very national, uh, transnational content. Because Dale says, Andrew, whom would you rank as Canada's greatest prime minister and why? Mackenzie King, Laurier, McDonald, or somebody else? But it comes from Dale, who is a Welshman living near Milan, Italy. So I, I don't often get a Welshman near Milan asking me about Canadian prime ministers. So I, I'm obliged to take this question. So my three options, I mean, I could pick from any of them, but my three options that he provided, which I think are fairly good ones, uh, William Lyon, Mackenzie King, Wilfred Laurier, and John A. Macdonald. Now, uh, this is not going to be on the quiz later, so fear not if you uh, aren't following along at home. I would go with John A. Macdonald, who, I mean, I, well, Laurier was fantastic, and Laurier is one of the reasons that the Canadian relationship with the United States has always been so strong. He is one of the forefathers of free trade between Canada and the U.S., but John A. Macdonald is the reason there is a Canada today. Now, admittedly, some days you may not think that's actually an accomplishment, which, fair enough, but generally speaking, if you're happy that Canada exists, John A. Macdonald is the reason, because Confederation, the idea that became Canada, combining all of these disparate British colonies, and then Upper Canada, Lower Canada, then Canada East, Canada West, bringing them all together was a significant achievement. It wasn't natural, it wasn't automatic. It wasn't something that was easy. And it happened because you had the right people that were prepared to do the right things at the right time. And John A. Macdonald was one of those. And, you know, going back to Lord Durham, Art Canada's Durham report, Lord Durham report about two warring nations within a single bosom, English Canada and French Canada. These tensions are very real to this day. So the idea of a prime minister that could keep English Canada and French Canada together, east and west, build a transcontinental railroad, all of these things which John A. Macdonald did are tremendously significant, and, and there would not be a Canada without him. So I, I think Wilfrid Laurier is definitely my runner-up. They don't make liberals like Laurier anymore, but my, my number one choice, Dale, is going to John A. Macdonald. And thank you very much for asking that question. Since we bounced on very briefly to Canada, Leslie writes, Leslie B. writes, have any Canadian politicians responded to your book and do you think it's causing the government any embarrassment? Have you heard any unofficial comment from Trudeau on it? Well, alas, no. I've had a couple of conservative politicians that have reached out that have enjoyed it, which has been nice, but nothing from Justin Trudeau just yet. But again, it has big words in it, so that may be part of the reason. John Barrett writes, Hello, Andrew. We followed the Canadian truckers' convoy and wonder, what happened to the little guys crushed by Trudeau? This is a great question, John. The Ottawa cafe owner who closed her store amid threats, the single mom who donated $50 and had her bank account frozen, and most of all, the truckers who had their truck seized. Did the big state win on all counts and face no consequences? Thanks, John Barrett. It's in some ways too early to tell. 
because a lot of people that were fined in charge didn't have the strength to fight. They didn't have the strength, the time, the money to fight. They just wanted to move on with their lives. The government froze a couple of hundred bank accounts of people who had no charges against them, no convictions, in, in, of course. And the government froze their bank accounts, credit cards, lines of credit, all of this stuff. And there's no recourse because one of the things the government did was baked into its emergency powers this idea that the banks and the government had no liability for this. So what happened was you had all of these people that were very concerned of like this story, oh, you know, I donated $50 and, you know, my bank account's not working. And these things became really the stuff of lore in Canada in a way because everyone knew someone who knew someone who had been who had had their account frozen for for something fairly innocuous. And a lot of these things, you know, didn't actually come to pass. They weren't legitimate. But the whole point of it is, is that it sent a chill and, and the government successfully made it so that people were too scared to support the truckers. And everyone thought their account would have been frozen. I mean, look, I've had people that, again, jokingly, but it's not even really a joke, that have said, oh, if I, if I buy your book, is my account going to get frozen? Well, if I'm the one getting the book royalties, my account is probably going to get frozen if that's the case. But the, that was what the government did. The government was trying to send a chill. And it's the same as the continued imprisonment of Tamara Leach. The point of it is not that they think she's done something worthy of imprisonment or detention directly. I, I think her crime, and I, I said this in a column I wrote the other day, I think Tamara Leach's crime was embarrassing the state. And, you know, she was one of the leaders of this convoy that I think was very humiliating to Justin Trudeau and the government. So it's not even like they want to throw the book at her because the book doesn't support what they're doing. But they just want to lock her up to set an example so that no one else dares do the same thing again. Because they know that they're going to be making those preconditions for a protest again. They're going to be putting us in a fall lockdown. They're going to be bringing back the vaccine passports. They're going to be bringing back the vaccine mandates. And they don't want Trucker Convoy 2.0 to come back in September, October, November. So they're going to keep her in jail until people get the message. And it's not helping, of course, because all they do is make a martyr of her. But I think that in the end, the state generally seems to be winning because the, the courts in Canada are completely ineffectual and feckless. They have no, they have no real substance and, and meat to them. And interestingly enough, our, our chief justice of our Supreme Court, Richard Wagner, he has been deciding to go down the road of political punditry. And he's actually, this is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's been doing interviews in which he talks about the convoy. And in one case, he said it was deplorable what these people did to the city of Ottawa. So he literally called these people who may have cases that come before him in due course, he called them deplorable with, with no sense of irony or understanding of, of that term. So it was Canada's basket of deplorables moment. So I, I think that the little people are, are always going to lose in the end because the institutions have stacked the deck against them. And it's a matter of whether you want to, you know, die standing or die sitting down. I mean, Jordan Peterson had said in an interview I did with him years ago, you know, you can pick your punishment, but you don't get to pick no punishment. And it's a rather myopic view of the world. But when you accept that view, when you accept that view, it, it's one that actually has a, an odd beauty in its simplicity. Amanda writes, Dear Mark, I'm assuming you mean Andrew, but Dear Mark, on last week's Clubland Q&A, a member asked where the parents of these child rapists were and why they weren't calling for an end to these heinous acts. What I would like to know is where the parents of the so-called white slags are. Oh, I hate that term. I understand that different homes operate under different rules, but what parent allows their 12-year-old daughter to be out all night again and again and again? Where are the parents of the girls who have been so brutally treated? That is uh, Amanda from Surrey, British Columbia. I, I think the whole point of these things is, is that they're going after people who, for whatever reason they feel don't matter in society. People from rougher neighborhoods, rougher families, families that maybe don't have the most uh, diligent parents. And, and again, I don't want to typecast people, and I, I certainly don't want to come across as judgmental. I also don't think it's fair to be putting the blame on these families, on, on these victims' families. Because the whole point is that you have in that question, I feel, a lot of the very same judgment that led to these awful, awful police in Rotherham and elsewhere that didn't want to go to these people. 
because they just assumed, oh, yeah, it's no biggie if the 12-year-old is out all night. That's just business as usual. People, I mean, when I hear Sammy Woodhouse, I'm just astonished every single time. Police that literally see her in bed with her rapist. They see it. They're in the room. And decide, oh, okay, whatever, and carry on. So I don't really care. I mean, yes, you could say, where are the parents? And I think it's a, you know, maybe a question to explore, but it's not something that I feel is really all that relevant. Because you're talking about people that have been forgotten by the system. And, you know, maybe part of the reason they're exploited is because they have family situations that are going to allow for exactly what ends up happening to them. And it's horrific that this is still an ongoing thing. I mean, we talk about Rotherham as being the most notable example of it, but this is in dozens and dozens and dozens of communities all up and down England, all over the country. And it's not over. It's not over. You may say the worst is behind. I certainly hope that's the case. Caroline Caroline Cox, who's a Baroness Cox in the UK, has done tremendous work on this. And she listed at one point in the House of Lords in a speech she gave all the cities where it was known. So not conjecture, not speculative. And it was a long, long list. And that is a national shame. It is a national scandal. And even so, political correctness gets in the way of enforcing the law. David writes, Mark, it was super, see, they haven't read the little note about the guest host, but that's okay. Mark, it was super interesting a while back that you mentioned how much you liked the Ukrainian people. I spent some time there 15 to 20 years ago and drew a very different conclusion. It was the only place I was ever asked to pay a bribe. The people I dealt with were uniformly venal and soulless and would sell their grandmother for a dollar. I should have read this question before I started reading it, but my conclusion was that this society had been so badly damaged by communism and the culture prior to communism, and it goes on a little bit, uh, but uh, I know you've traveled quite a bit, so I'm, I'm curious about how this fits your assessment of the Ukrainian people. Well, I, I can't speak to Mark's assessment of the Ukrainian people, but I, I think it speaks for itself because he did speak to how lovely the people were when he took the show to Ukraine and met people. And I'll always remember that Mark had been there for like a day and I wasn't with him. I was watching this remotely. He'd been there for less than a day. And then in the very first few minutes of his show, he's hugging this guy named Yanosh, who's bringing him, I think it was like some form of schnapps or whatever, because he had just made this friend with this kind, kind Russian speaking Ukrainian man in the span of you know five minutes or whatever but i I do think there is something to communism breaking people and breaking societies and and i may be overly paranoid here but just speaking to my own experience right now walking around in in albania for i don't know however long i've been here for 12 hours I, i noticed that people look at you people look at you more than they do in the west more than they do in north america more than they do in continental europe uh in the western part and in the uk and i i don't know if it's a skepticism i don't know if it's looking at me and saying i oh, he definitely doesn't belong or trying to figure out and he doesn't look albanian i don't know who that is and but it but it's been very noticeable and it's not to say people have been rude or unkind but it's just that I, I notice that whereas people are normally oblivious and don't really you know pay too much mind to who's around them here they seem to be eyeing people around them. And I haven't spent much time in former communist countries. I mean, I was in Estonia 13, 14 years ago, and I, I didn't notice the trend then. So it could be Albania specific, or it could just be that I, you know, had toilet paper on my shoe or something, and I didn't notice it, and they were all looking at me for that reason. But I, I do think there is something to the idea that people coming out of those things have a, a very different way of doing it. I, I remember hearing George Jonas speak about just the snitch culture. Actually, I think Mark spoke about it too at uh, the George Jonas Freedom Awards Center, the snitch culture in Hungary, and just how everyone there is was basically snitching on someone else, and that was just a part of their culture. That was just a, a, a part of life. Keep on trucking, <laughs> says, uh, hi, Andrew, I just got your new book on the Freedom Convoy. Congratulations. I love it so far. Question on what basis are they holding Tamara Leach? Well, I touched on this earlier, but I, 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 there's a part of me that feels the basis doesn't really matter because it's not about what she actually did. It's about what the state wants. And I think if you want to see how this ends, just look at what's happening to Steve Bannon. 
Look at what's happening to the state's chosen nemeses, the enemies of the state, supposedly, in the January 6th thing. Look at George Papadopoulos. George Papadopoulos, the condition was etched in stone. The treatment was etched in stone long before anything ever happened. And it's, it's very much reverse engineered. I mean, it's like a Hollywood screenplay. You, you write the last scene and then you work back, how do I get there? And that's been exactly what's happened with Tamara Leach, and I, I fear is going to continue to be what happens there. And it's quite unfortunate. Lawrence writes, uh, Dear Andrew, same thing happening in USA as Canada. Governments both jailing political opponents like Steve Bannon today in Washington. How can this be happening in Anglo-Saxon countries with a history of English common law? Going back to Magna Carta, uh, Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, Charter of Rights, etc. How did this tyranny come to pass? The reason is that freedom is no longer in the hearts and minds of people. And, and I have gone through my own development on this. I don't even know if I'd call it an evolution. Where I used to be one of the constitution wavers. Now, admittedly, waving around a Canadian constitution has never been as uh, fun as waving around an American constitution. And waving an American constitution in Canada really doesn't get you very far. But, you know, I used to have a lot more optimism and a lot more hope that these values, they're right there, they're written, they're, they're set in stone, they're codified, they're in law. I mean, how can governments ignore them? And we all know how naive that is. There's a, a gentleman in Canada by the name of Brian Peckford, who was the premier of Newfoundland, and he is the last first minister that was around when Canada's new constitution in 1982 was passed. So he was one of the the authors, in a way, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is Canada's Bill of Rights, which we only had on the books for, for 40 years as of this year. And Brian Peckford was tremendously, by his own admission, tremendously naive about how courts would behave with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, because the Charter of Rights and Freedoms gives courts latitude and it gives governments latitude. And all of the first ministers at the time had no idea that it would be used and abused how it has been in recent years, certainly through COVID. But that's the reality, is that the rights as they're listed on the piece of paper, the values of the Magna Carta, what happened at Runnymede, none of this matters if people don't care. And it's, it's exactly the problem with freedom of speech. You can have a First Amendment, but it doesn't matter if everyone around you wants to burn you at the stake for saying something politically incorrect. You can have a guarantee of freedom of speech, but it doesn't matter if the people around you hate that and don't believe that's a right. You know, when the Emergencies Act was invoked in Canada to to deal with the convoy, Justin Trudeau specifically said, your rights, your charter rights, your civil liberties are not affected by this. But then police went in and started arresting people for assembling and threatening to arrest people for walking down the street and pepper spraying people and running over elderly women with horses. And the claim that your charter rights were intact didn't really matter on the ground. So I think that's the answer, Lawrence, is is that oftentimes I think people have been too reliant on the pieces of paper and the courts and the institutions and governments doing something and not as focused on making sure that the people want these values. Because it's the people that ultimately will get the final say on all of these things. It's the people that will get the final say. But if the people don't stand up, it's the government. It's the state that gets the final say. Jimbo writes, Hey, Andrew, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation is pushing all U.S. motorists into battery cars. He has no idea where the power will come from to recharge the batteries. By my calculations, it would take the construction of 150 nuclear power plants to provide the energy now provided by gasoline. Clearly not possible. So is it the strategy of the U.S. government to curtail the free movement of its citizens? I think you should always err on the side of yes, that is absolutely their goal. And and if it's not their explicit goal, it's certainly the effect of their goal. But one of the things that I, I find interesting about this is that all of the environmentalists, I mean, when they talk about electric cars, they they aren't actually being serious. And I think they know they're not being serious because they know that these things only work for people in urban centers. And they pretend that they're not dealing with something that 
in the lifespan of it, if you take into account the mining, the manufacturing, the processing of it, is not net zero. But they pretended, and, and what they're actually trying to do is sell a lifestyle, because they know that a lot of people can't afford the electric car. A lot of people can't afford the Tesla. A lot of people can't afford to install a charging station in their driveway. So, so when they say they want the one thing, what they're actually trying to do is say that we should not drive. And it's the same attitude about, we, about earlier, that we shouldn't eat meat, we shouldn't drive, we shouldn't live in the country, we shouldn't do all of these things. And, and what they're trying to do is make it so that you, they aren't explicitly banning something, but they're making it so difficult to do anything else that it leads people down this road. And it's the same thing that we're seeing with this as we are in other areas. So it, it's going to be, you, you're going to be in your battery car driving to get your cricket burger from McDonald's. <laughs> that'll, be the, uh, that'll be the future here. Uh, we have one from Penn's Andrew. I was taken aback with Trudeau's response to the Canadian truckers movement, but I was appalled that your parliament just appeared to go along with it. One point of pride I always thought was the Canadian resistance to following the U.S. lockstep. Your Prime Minister seems to want to outdo the Democrats here in authoritarianism. The fifth column of the fascists here are the fascists in Canada. Thoughts? I don't even know why I chuckle, I guess, because I, I think it's just very apt. And I, I think it actually makes me quite happy as a Canadian that other people outside the country are seeing this. Because a lot of Canadians aren't seeing it, or at least weren't until very recently. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. But I do think that there was a turning point. I mean, Canadians don't have protests built into their DNA. We're not a country that's born of revolution like the United States is. So I think it's taken legitimately quite a long time for people to want to reclaim that idea of individualism. Collectivism is still very much the preeminent doctrine behind public policy in Canada. And that's how government has sold vaccine mandates to people. And when I mentioned that polling earlier of how 75% of people in September were for vaccine passports and vaccine mandates, and now 20% are, 25%, that is something that actually in Canada and in a Canadian context is very new. And whether it's fleeting or not stands to be seen. I hope it's not. And that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book I did. And if you missed the very beginning, that book is, is being essentially shadow banned. It's not being censored. It's not being burned. But it's being shadow banned by the media, by the booksellers. It's being shadow banned by all of these people that don't want the story told. And, and I think it goes back to what I was saying to Lawrence's question about you can't rely on the institutions to tell your story and stand up for you. You have to rely on people. And, and people starts with person. And that is you. So on that note, my thanks to all of you for tuning in to this guest-hosted edition of Mark's Clubland Q&A. As I mentioned, he will be back on the air on Serenade Radio this weekend on Sunday, and then Monday night, 8 p.m. British Summertime. He will be on GB News on the telly hosting the Mark, Ty Mark Stein Show. Back in his rightful place in the host chair, none of these guest host businesses like you've been putting up with today. So thanks very much to you all. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day.
Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.